Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. I'm coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Garland is off this week. For the next two hours, I will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. So it's now being reported that former President Donald Trump has said his Florida home was raided by the FBI in a dramatic escalation of the legal investigations into the former U.S. president. This is unprecedented as far as I know, and I think this goes even beyond Nixon. There are legal as well as political ramifications here. So for insight into the legal ramifications, let's turn to my first guest. He's one of the top lawyers in California, if not the country. His firm handles police misconduct, including excessive force, deadly force, false arrest, illegal searches, racial profiling and jail abuse. He's argued cases before the Supreme Court and won. He is attorney John Burris. As always, John, welcome back. Well, thank you. Good to be with you as usual. And um, uh, quite a quite a day yesterday involving the former president. Um, you know, I initially when I saw this, I thought this was uh, a big to do about nothing, given that it was about documents that were unrelated to uh, uh, the issues surrounding January 6th. Uh, upon reflection, though, uh, it, it certainly seemed to be more significant um, from a from a, a a safety point of view, a national safety point of view, because of the documents that were there, some of which appeared to be real classified documents. But the legal question is: uh, Did the government have a right? Should the government have done what they did, and they have a right to do it? Well, first off, they certainly had a right to do it, and but in order to do it, they had to get um, a search warrant issued by a federal judge, which then means that the FBI had to go to the judge and say, look, we think there's evidence of criminal conduct that has taken place uh, by the president, and that criminal uh, evidence of that criminal conduct is in his house. And, and so, therefore, we need a search warrant in order to go in and see if we can find evidence of this criminal conduct, which we believe exists. In this case, it's obviously it's illegal, they said, to uh, take classified documents uh, away from from the White House or from the government and, and, and staff them yourself, and, and so that in and of itself is a crime. So in that sense, they certainly had the authority uh, to do it. The judge issued a subpoena. The comments made by the former president, that he was being raided, it's really more of a political term than not. Particularly when he has had more opportunity uh, to give over, turn these documents over, and he chose not to do it which then raises the question, why did he do such thing? Now, some of it might have been very personal items that were not that significant. On the other hand, there are those who believe that some of them uh, may have evidence of top-secret information that should not be given. But in any event, he should have turned the items over and negotiated uh, with them with those items he would like to have kept, which he could have done. So this is another example of him really just being bold and, uh, uh, and, and, and snapping his fingers, if you will, uh, in the face of government requests, because he could have done all of this and given these documents up without having the government to go through all of this. Now, to me, the question is, is this something we should have spent all this energy on? Because there will be people sympathetic to the president, the former president, around this question on the grounds that, did you have to do all of this in order to get these documents? Could you have continued to talk about it and, and maybe reach some kind of agreement? Apparently, that had not 
been done. My concern here is that there are bigger cases on the, on the horizon and more serious cases on the horizon uh, in one sense of, about uh, uh, the former president that is taking place now in terms of the investigations around uh, the attempted coup as well as what's going on in New York. On the other hand, and in, and in Georgia, where there's real questions there about his interference with the Georgia election, all of which seem to be huge uh, and, and maybe uh, uh, much more um, scintillating than, than the one on, on, on the, um, the document itself. On the other hand, there are principles involved, and this appears to be more of a principle question than the illegal conduct. I would doubt that any invest, uh, criminal charges come from this, but I would remind it, and you will remember this as well, that when Hillary Clinton was supposed to have taken documents, hit the chant from him, as well as other Republicans were, quote, lock, lock her, her up. up, lock her up. And this is a situation where he li- he literally can be locked up uh, because of this. So it remains to be seen what really happens. Uh, I hope, though, that this is not a situation where you just file, file charges, not file charges, but uh, went into this person's home with a search warrant and, and find what you want mm. and then kind of walk away saying, all, all's good now, because that's the wrong precedent that should be set. If you take classified documents, I would think that um, you, there's a price to pay when you do such. And it's even worse when you have top, top secret documents that can really change the course of history if they got into the wrong hands. And given the present uh, uh, manner of uh, details uh, and commitment to details, uh, it seems to me that, that we're all kind of vulnerable uh, to those documents being placed, getting into the wrong hands, uh, even inadvertently. So I think it's a good thing. Does this give you any insight into Merrick Garland as the attorney general? Go ahead. I, yes, I think what it says is uh, uh, Merrick Garland means what he says that uh, no person is above the law. And he may be meticulous in the manner in which he goes about it, because remember, this is almost a two-year deal right here. They've mm-hmm. known about these documents forever. Mm-hmm. He certainly thought he'd done it, but I think he's, he's meticulous about things, and uh, he rethinks what he needs to make sure he's on solid ground. So it says to me that he is certainly not uh, afraid uh, to go forward, because even though no charges are filed here, it's a bold deal. Uh, to go and uh, search the former president's home, uh, that's never been done before. So it strikes me that this is consistent with his view that no person is above the law, and it, no matter how much time it takes, he's prepared to take the time uh, to follow through on those. And he's doing, a, he's doing a pretty good job in a lot of different areas that we otherwise had not had much activity uh, for a long time. In fact, that was really the basis of my question. There are those who have complained that Merrick Garland has been very quiet and almost passive in many regards. And so that's why I was wondering if this gives you any insight into the mindset of Merrick Garland. Also, do you see anything here in terms of timing? In fact, because it was yesterday or the day before that Donald Trump talked about running for president and that an announcement would be coming shortly, and then the day after he makes that statement, his house is raided. Do you see that, any link there in terms of the witch hunt that many of his supporters are claiming, or this is just the way the days on the calendar fall? Well, I don't know that I'd say it's where the calendar falls because you have you do have the judgment and you do have decision making authority at any point in time. So uh, whether this was a, a calendar issue or not, that's a hard one to to identify because mm-hmm. he's, the option has been there for a long period of time. 
it's almost a two-year deal. Mm -hmm. And so it's one of the uh, tasks that, I, that they're working on, and maybe in terms of priorities, it's just, it's just come up, and it's the time to do it. It remains to be seen, uh, uh, but I, I think that Mayor Garland has a lot of things on his plate. Uh, this is just one of them, and uh, the president probably is the biggest one because he got all this activity taking place around it. Switching gears, Ahmed Arbery's killers sentenced on federal counts sent to state prison. Travis and Gregory McMichael, along with William Bryan, sought to serve their time in federal prison, which they said would be safer, but they are now behind bars in state prison, and I believe they're there for the remainder of their natural lives. Well, I, I'll tell you, this is a huge, huge decision that was made uh, as a, that flows from it. Number one, this goes to the whole issue around um, the, um, the attorney general filing these charges because he didn't have to do it because they were already convicted, and then not taking a deal or letting a deal go through where these men could have pled guilty to the race question, but they could have gone to federal prison. And because the family said no to the federal prison, uh, the, the, the uh, Mayor Garland and his team backed up and said, okay, we're not going to do that particular deal. So just being responsive to the people I thought was really was really uh, sympathetic um, and really showed uh, some remorse and, and a real consideration of the pain that they've suffered and how the system really tried to jack them around uh, and ignore them at the very beginning. And so his efforts to make that right uh, is important. And, it, and these men are correct. That no question that the state prison system is 10 times worse than the federal system. Mm. The federal system can be a country club in many ways. Mm. These men have life sentences in front of them. And, you know, to serve them in the federal penitentiary is a whole lot better than serving in the state penitentiary. I can assure you of that. And, and so uh, they're right to be concerned about it. And But my view is that's their just dessert. Mm -hmm. as, as, um, as, as one man asked for mercy, the response was, well, how you didn't give this kid mercy. He didn't, even, he didn't even get to make a 26th, 26th birthday. And you get to live at least for the rest of your life. So why should we have mercy for you? So, But, again, I see this as part of uh, Garland, Mary Garland's thing. And, and, and go even. We didn't talk about this early, but the, but, uh, the Breonna Taylor case last week mm -hmm. where they said they were going to prosecute these four men who, who literally gave false statements to get a search warrant, the search warrant, ironically, is the same thing we're talking about in president, uh, on the former president. But, it, but it's the information you get, the search warrant, then allows you to go over and, and, and put yourself in a position to go into this folks' house. If you had not done so and you had the correct information, the judge may not have granted that, that um, uh, opportunity for that search warrant. And this never would have happened. So I, I think it's a real, and I haven't seen this done before, where the, a prosecution took place based upon the, the search warrants that ultimately led, a false search warrant that ultimately led to the death of someone, and then they prosecuted that person for the search warrants because that information contributed uh, ultimately to the death of that person. So this in and of itself was an aggressive aggressive position. And and so I think he's done very well in, in, in looking at these cases closely and, and putting resources in them in these federal civil rights cases. Keep in mind, 
We got none of this under the Trump administration. We got some of it under, under the um, under the Obama administration. So this this is a, a golden age in many ways for the Attorney General's office uh, and, and federal prosecution in cases where African Americans have been victimized. So um, uh, kudos to them for this particular case, and I think that the federal judge. Uh, was right on right on it. You didn't give mercy uh, to him. Why should we give mercy to you? And everyone knows that the federal sen- the state sentences in, in prison is, is, is a challenging place to be. These men might be in protective custody for the rest of their lives. In fact, Amy Lee Copeland, the attorney for Travis McMichael, said he has received hundreds of threats and faced, quote, an effective backdoor death penalty, end quote, if sent to Georgia State Prison. To which I say, well, that's the lot you chose when you decided that you were going to pursue this young man for no reason other than running through your neighborhood. Absolutely. And, and you know, think about this. Other people have to go to Georgia State Prison who don't want to go there either. <laughs> they like to have I, I don't know that there's anyone there that wants to be there. Well, they want to be there. And it's a, it's state prisons, by definition, are harsh. I mean, but realities are harsh, harsh compared to federal prison penitentiary. So that, that part is a, a truism. But I think, uh, and, and I will tell you, I've seen cases where where person has a state sentence and a federal sentence, and they serve the federal sentence first, and they serve it concurrently. So uh, this is a real shift, and it's something that a judge had the authority to do, uh, and, and, and he or she did. I don't remember if the male or female, but they did it. Let me jump in quickly because we only have about 40 seconds. On the Breonna Taylor piece, did they do those cases backwards? If they had done the search warrant case first and found that the warrant was based on misinformation and lies, would that have impacted the outcome of the other case? We've got just about 45 seconds. It it, it could have, but the truth of the matter is the feds were not involved in the case. That was a state case Mm -hmm. that was being done. And the feds would not get involved generally until the federal case, the state case is over. So, sure, if there had been a federal case first, they may have uncovered that. But I don't know if they would have done it then. I think this is a function of this is such an outrageous result. Let's go back and look at the origin of this. Okay. And the federal did. So I don't think it, there's a chicken and egg question here. I think they would have done the state case first no matter what. Attorney John Burris, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Absolutely. Good to talk with you. Take care. You are listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. I'm back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Consortium News has a piece entitled A Pan-Africa Response to the New Imperialism. It's written by a Kenyan politician and author who is also the current governor of Kisumu County, P. Anyang Nyong'o. 
And for insight into this, we turn to my next guest. He holds the John Jay and Rebecca Moore's Chair of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's one of the most prolific writers of our time. His latest book is entitled The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery, Jim Crow, and the Roots of American Fascism. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, sir, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. So, Governor... Nyong'o writes, a new imperialism stalks the third world. It shares with the old and unquenchable thirst for its labor, its land, its minerals, and its water. If colonization depended on the political strategies of divide and rule, the imperialists no longer have to rule today. Instead, they rely on local elites eager to aid their people's exploitation in return for a share of the spoils, a process sanitized with the language of investments, trade deals, and partnerships. Your thoughts on this analysis, Dr. Horn? Well, I think that the writer probably had in mind the current visit to Africa of U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. That is to say that Mr. Blinken's voyage throughout the continent in some ways represents the battle days of U.S. imperialism, which have yet to dissipate. That is to say, those with longer memories recognize, for example, with regard to his first stop in Pretoria, South Africa, that U.S. imperialism was one of the major backers of South African apartheid. And despite the fact that we were able to push through anti-apartheid legislation in the mid-1980s over the veto of Ronald Wilson Reagan, the fact remains that even today the U.S. intelligence agencies are not reconciled to the triumph of anti-apartheid forces in South Africa, as is well known in that part of Africa. Uh, Then, of course, he plans to visit the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and as well known, the predecessor regime, or one of the predecessor regimes there, that of the man once known as Joseph Mobutu, was a kleptocrat back to the hilt by Washington, He was implicated, of course, in the tragic 1961 assassination of Congolese founding father Patrice Lumumba, assisted by the U.S. intelligence agency, as detailed in the memoir by former CIA agent in Congo, speaking of Larry Devlin, D-E-V-L-I-N, not Devlin, although I understand why you might have misheard me. And we also know that Mr. Blinken plans to visit Rwanda. And we also remember that in 1994, at the time of the genocide, Washington chose not to lift a finger to prevent the massacre of tens of thousands of Africans. And we also know that Susan Rice, who was implicated in that nonfeasance, is now one of the top staff members at the White House under President Joseph R. Biden. So this is the backdrop of this journey to Africa. And I should also mention, and I think this may be the overriding point, and that point is that Washington is trying to put forward a modest line with regard to this current journey of Secretary Blinken. 
That is to say, unlike the days of the Cold War, when Washington would overthrow governments who would not back the United States and its contestation with the socialist camp, now Mr. Blinken says the worm has turned, Washington has changed its colors, and uh, they have a, a kind of uh, Sinatra doctrine for Africa, uh, do it your way, uh, not necessarily my way, speaking of uh, Africa, speaking to Africa uh, from the United States. But I think that, number one, this needs to be seen as empty rhetoric, helping to cloak the malevolent plans and influences of the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency, who are shadowing Mr. Blinken's trip, but also its reflection of the modesty Washington has to project in light of the changes on the African continent. Much has been made, understandably, about the role of China in Africa in terms of building infrastructure, such as railroads in Kenya and Ethiopia, a new parliament building outside of Harare, Zimbabwe. But Less has been said about the fact that it's not only China and Russia who are establishing friendships with African nations that are reducing space for Washington to engage in its usual dirty tricks. But if you look at Turkey, or to use the current term that they would like us to use, Turkeya, Turkey is the major force in Somalia, for example. It manages the airport. It manages the port. It picks up garbage. Its largest embassy worldwide is in Somalia. Turkey is flexing its muscles in many African countries that have predominantly Muslim populations, such as Somalia. And that does not even bring into account India, soon to be the most populous nation on planet Earth, which, because of the activities of British colonialism in the days before Indian independence, August 15, 1947, uh, you saw that Britain, like a chess master, was shipping Indians all over the world, including to the Indian Ocean coast of Africa. And so in the region, stretching, stretching particularly from Mombasa in Kenya down to Durban in South Africa, uh, you have substantial populations of Indian descent, which allows for a foothold for New Delhi to engage in prof- mutually profitable relations with African countries. And so I understand why the writer in Consortium News was rehearsing the idea of the old imperialism, but fortunately times have changed for the better, and it's going to be very difficult for Washington to reverse the clock of history. One of the things I found interesting, and I just wanted to get your quick take on this, he writes, during COVID-19, Africa depended entirely on the Western world for its future. Why is it that a small island like Cuba, with only 11 million people and sugarcane as its main agricultural endowment, could respond much more effectively than the whole of Africa? I thought that was an incredibly salient question to ask. Indeed. And, of course, the answer is rather simple, is that Cuba opted for the socialist path, that is to say, to strengthen the role of government and to fight a fierce battle against world imperialism, particularly U.S. imperialism, 90 miles away. And this allows me 
to make the point further that you probably have heard about that oil tank explosion in Matanzas in Cuba, which has yet to be suppressed, by the way, and is causing enormous damage. They mm-hmm. see aid from Russia, from Venezuela, from Mexico, I understand even technical aid from the United States of America. But certainly there are a number of campaigns unfolding to rush needed aid to Cuba so it can continue to do the good deeds for which it is renowned, including uh, sending doctors throughout Africa, including sending vaccines throughout the world. And so the writer needs to be saluted for his insight into this current issue in the Caribbean. There's a piece in Mint Press, The Intricate Fight for Africa, The Legacy of the Soviet Union versus Western Colonialism. It's written by Ramzi Bahroud, and he writes, Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov's recent tour in Africa was meant to be a game changer, not only in terms of Russia's relations with the continent, but in the global power struggle involving the U.S., Europe, China, India, Turkey, and others. Many reports and analysis placed Lavrov's visit to Egypt, the Republic of Congo, and other countries within the obvious context of the Russia-Ukraine war. Your thoughts on this piece? Well, certainly the Ukraine conflict has been part of this inflection point that we see, whereby Russia and China in particular are challenging the alleged rule-based international order, that is to say the old world order led by the U.S. empire, and they are rapidly being assisted by other nations. Now, I noticed that the writer mentioned Turkeya or Turkey, and let me direct your listeners to a startling piece in the Financial Times of London in the last 24 to 48 hours, where they pointed out that in light of President Erdogan's visit to President Putin in Sochi, do not be surprised. Number one, which is already unfolding, that Turkey will throw in its lot with Russia and China, particularly with regard to moving east into Turkic-speaking regions of formerly Soviet Central Asia. The goal is for there to be $100 billion in trade sooner rather than later between Russia and Turkey, which is an astonishing amount. And number two, perhaps even more staggering, do not be surprised if Turkey decides to either leave NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization led by the United States, or cool the relation with NATO. This could be a real game changer. Turkey is very upset by the alleged admission into NATO of Finland and Sweden because Turkey feels they have been uh, hostile to Ankara and light of housing. Kurdish refugees. Turkey has one of the largest militaries in NATO. It has been essential, in fact, to the Ukrainian military in terms of supplying them with drones, now being challenged because Washington says that U.S. technology is being used. Mr. Erdogan has not forgotten that about uh, six years ago, the Obama administration was apparently involved in an attempt to militarily overthrow Mr. Erdogan. So the world is changing. And what distresses me is I'm not sure, Professor Leon, if our community is up to speed on these changes and are willing to adapt to these changes and instead might be tailing after Anthony Blinken and his losing line as he trapes throughout Africa. 
And quickly, you know, I think there's a piece in the Saker, Foreign Minister Lavrov's speech to the African Union, and he talks about as the West launches an unprecedented campaign of sanctions, accusations, and threats vis-a-vis Russia and anybody else who dares to support Russia, he says, this campaign indicates we're living through a very important historical period, a period where we will all be deciding what kind of universe we're going to have and leave for our children. It's a very good speech, and the speech is very consistent with the pieces that we've been talking about. Uh, I agree. And here's another news note to chew on. Just a few days ago, Mercosur, the South American bloc led by Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, etc., refused, turned thumbs down, an opportunity to be addressed by President Zelensky of Ukraine. Recall that Brazil is led by Mr. Bolsonaro, a certified right-winger, although Brazil happens to be a member of BRICS, a rising bloc, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, which is now having uh, sifting through applications from Indonesia, Argentina, Saudi Arabia, uh, Turkey, etc. So the world is changing before our eyes. And what we might have believed just as recently as yesterday will be basically obsolete later today or tomorrow. But once again, I'm not sure if our community is up to speed on these Copernican changes. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you are listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. Back and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Asia Times has a piece, Damage from Pelosi's Asia Tour Awaits Final Tally. Besides worsening U.S. and Taiwanese relations with China, her trip made the semiconductor conundrum even more complicated. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's retired from a global advisory services firm where he advised clients on their China strategies and business operations. He uh, was educated at MIT, Stevens Institute, and Santa Clara University. He's the founder and former managing director of International Strategic Alliances, and he's the author of this piece. George Coop, as always, George, welcome back. Thanks, Wilmer. Looking forward to talking. You write, Nancy Pelosi came and left. Some in Taiwan called her visit a part of her graduation trip, a tad condescending perhaps, but they meant it was her last hurrah. George, this was a serious, serious miscalculation on her part. Your thoughts? Well, you know, I, I think she has always been known to be a pretty pig-headed person, and she's all she doesn't listen to counter suggestions. She's set out, determined to do what she wants to do, and I don't think anything is more important to her than to reconfirm her credentials, quote unquote as a defender of democracy and human rights. And she started on that path very, very early in her career when she was just elected to Congress and she was invited by 
Beijing as part of a congressional delegation to visit China. And she sneaks out of the organized tours and activities to show up at Tiananmen and unfurl a banner that basically declares human rights in China, you know, as a as a um, show of support for the Tiananmen Square disturbance that happened two years earlier. And ever since then, she has made herself persona non grata in, in China, and she takes pride in, in that badge of honor. You say that the damage awaits final tally. Yeah. How so? Well, as I said in, in that piece, the short-term damage is pretty clearly visible to everybody, and which is that China has used Pelosi's trip and the fact that the Pelosi trip crossed China's red line to give China the moral high ground to do what they did. And what they did was to send their um, um, Navy ships all around the Taiwan island and to fire missiles that landed all around Taiwan. And that what, what China is now saying to the people of Taiwan is that inviting Pelosi was a big mistake because now we don't honor, we don't see the existence on the median line in the Taiwan Strait. It's what we're demonstrating in these live fire exercises for the next, I think it was about three, four days, is that we can go anywhere we want. We can shoot any, at any place and at any time, and, and we have justification for doing that. Uh, and, of course, we saw the uh, carrier Reagan. They got the hell out of there as quick as they can because they were those missiles were going to be landing in the areas east of Taiwan, and they got out of harm's way. And all of a sudden, the people in Taiwan realize and understand that if they take on the mainland China, they're going to be all by their lonesome. There's no U.S. soldiers or Japan or South Korea that's going to come and, and help them out. Uh, uh, it's such a serious crisis in Taiwan, they start to ask, who in the heck invited Nancy in the first place? And nobody would admit that they've done it. So that's the short-term um, shift in, in the whole China-Taiwan uh, situation. But the long-term, and, and that remains to be played out, is it has to do with the semiconductor industry. And it was reported in the Taiwan media that the only and first thing that Nancy demanded when she landed was that she wants to meet with the leaders of TSMC. That's Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing uh, Company. And, and she did meet them, and they had lunch. And, and she pressed on Morris Chang, the founder and the retired uh, chairman of TSMC. She pressed him over and over again for, hey, you got to finish building that plant in Arizona, and you might think about diversifying and relocating a plant in Japan as well. And Morris's reply was, well, you know, it doesn't, it's not very practical to spread ourselves thin from a management technical and economic point of view. What he didn't say, which he had said to in other times, is that 
He and he is a U.S. citizen, senior executive at Texas Instrument in his prior life. What he did say was, "Hey, we don't think the Americans have necessary skill now, you know, after so many years of non-investment, to be able to run a plant." Uh, so as in the advanced semiconductor manufacturing, and that conversation between Nancy and Morris Chang explains why South Korea didn't want to uh, meet with uh, Pelosi because Pelosi was going to push the same thing on the semiconductor fabs in South Korea. The only difference is that sixty percent. Of the Korean fabs, their products goes to China. Uh, TSMC has already been shaved down to 10%. They used to supply Huawei and ZTE, and the, and the Trump administration had already put a stop to that. So it's less painful for TSMC. It's extremely painful for, uh, for the South Korea. So there's... They avoid seeing Nancy because they don't want to have any awkward conversation at this point, and they're still trying to figure out how they're going to duck out of the pressure that the Biden administration is putting on them. But it goes more than just Korea and Taiwan. It affects the um, Netherlands company that has the world-leading technology in, in the lithography, and it even affects... Silicon Valley companies, and I mentioned one example, which is LAM Research. Now, LAM Research was founded by a Chinese-American, David LAM, but it's no longer it's as, as white and mainstream as you can get uh, as a Silicon Valley company goes. And they have sales um, just shy of $20 billion a year, and 31% of their products goes to China. Eight percent goes to the U.S., and so they're asking, "How in the world are we going to obey the Biden administration to stop selling to China?" That that tantamount to committing corporate suicide. So, this whole scheme of trying to decouple from China is making absolute no sense, nonsense, and no sense. And it's going to do irreparable damage to the key players in the semiconductor industry, whether they're in Asia, whether they're in Europe, or they were here, they're here at home. And, and that $52 billion that we, we're bandying about is not, going to, is not going to do anything to solve this problem. And by the way, if you if you look at some of the articles, including Bloomberg and elsewhere, China has already found different ways to get around some of these embargo and coming up with their own solutions. And what that means, of course, is that down the road, whether it's three years, five years, or whatever, China will be, will be competitors to the equipment sellers and to the fab providers that uh, that are forced not to continue to do business with China. It's an all-around lose, 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 lose deal, and I don't see any way that this is going to help the U.S. maintain maintain their uh, supposed superiority, technological superiority over China. Do you see any correlation, any dot connecting between 
Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul, <laughs> selling almost $5 million worth of NVIDIA stock at a loss. Yeah. And Nancy's trip to semiconductor land in Taiwan. Yeah. Well, you know, you raise an interesting question. Um, I can't vouch for the accuracy, but my understanding is Paul Pelosi is under investigation from in, for insider trading. Um couple of, couple of uh, points. First of all, you know, when you're sleeping with the House Speaker, uh, with the Speaker of the House, you are bound to have advantages on inside information. And he's known to be a very shrewd uh, uh, stock investor. When Nancy was elected, from when the time Nancy was elected to the Congress to now the Speaker of the House, their family net worth is is north of a hundred million, so one has to wonder where that comes from. Now, there is another. I guess she talks in her sleep. <laughs> there is another consequence, which is that uh, Beijing has now imposed personal sanctions on Pelosi, Nancy, and Paul, and the whole family, and includes some of the funds that they invest in that invest in China. Now, they're so rich now, they may not care. In fact, indeed, I think one of the Nancy's grandsons has said, I don't, I don't really give a hoot whether we're, on, we're being sanctioned or not. But, um, it, you know, depending on how far China wants to extend the sanction, it could mean that anything that they invest in will be persona and grata in China, won't be able to do business in China, won't be able to sell to China, won't be able to have factories in China, something that they've already done to Mike Pompeo as well. And that could hurt them in the pocketbook, and it could give companies pause as to what, whether they want to have any sort of relationship with the Pelosi family. And if they do, how secret, how much secret can they, uh, can they keep to keep it that way. So uh, it, there's, there's, there's consequences that need to be tallied, but we won't know how that's going to be for a while. And by the way, I also mentioned that China has the world-leading technology in batteries for electric vehicles. Now, that's an interesting, interesting mm-hmm. sidelight as well, because they were ready to to pick a plant either in South Carolina or Kentucky to, right. to invest in a huge battery plant to supply to four BMW. And their battery is so much better than Tesla's. I think they would even be supplying to Tesla as well. One charge will go over 600 miles, one battery charge. That changes and the game. That changes. And even more, the chairman who is a PhD in what they call condensed matter physics, which, which is the technology that he's using for the next two generations of batteries, those two are imminently ready for, for uh, introduction to the world. And they are already a, a, the major supplier of batteries for EV. Now, just, just, just imagine if Xi Jinping is, is in the same mind to reply in kind and give Washington a taste of quid pro quo, he could tell 
CATL. That's the name of the battery company. Mm-hmm. Probably. He could tell CATL, hey, don't bother putting a plant in the U.S. Right. Let them go without the advanced technology. Now, I personally don't think that he will do that because that's that's not necessary. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we have a we have a Senator Chuck Schumer. <laughs> yeah, Chuck Schumer will will do that. Chuck Schumer will probably, using the same logic he had before, probably he'll put a stop to the CATL investment because he can say, oh, all these batteries under the car could be listening device for <laughs> Beijing and China will be spying on us. He said, he said that before, you know. George Koo, we'll pick that one up next time. George Koo, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Look forward to having you back. All right. Pleasure talking to you, Wilmer. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. back and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's some great analysis entitled The Bombshell in the U.S. July Jobs Report and what it means for Fed policy and recession. And it opens last Friday, August 5th, U.S. Jobs Report for July 2022 surprised even mainstream economists who had forecast a 250,000 increase in jobs created in the official U.S. Labor Department monthly jobs report for the period ending mid-July. The numbers came in at 528,000 in the CES large corporation survey for the month. For insight into this, let's turn to my next guest. He holds a PhD in political economy, teaches economics at St. Mary's College in California. He's the author of a number of books, including The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump. And he's the author of this piece, Dr. Jack Rasmus. As always, sir, welcome back. Always glad to be here. You write, the unexpected large increase in jobs was jumped on by Biden administration and business sources alike who had been arguing publicly in preceding weeks that the U.S. economy was not in recession. How could it be in a recession when the jobs market was so robust, the argument went? Well, Jack, 528,000 jobs. What does that tell us? Yeah, well, you got to understand that these labor reports every month <clears throat> are the base on based on two separate surveys. One is called the Establishment Survey or CES, you know, and that is uh, reporting from large corporations, you know, about 450,000 of them. You know, there's like eight or nine million companies in this country, but 450,000, the larger corporations uh, send in their data reports uh, to um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, on how many jobs uh, they've hired and so forth, right? That's where you get the 528,000, but there's a separate survey that the Labor Department also does. They do both at the same time of households, small businesses and so forth, uh, of about fifty to 60,000 every month. These are telephone surveys mostly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that survey called the population survey or the household survey shows a decline in jobs, in total employment, of uh, 112,000 
a negative 112,000 last month, as opposed to the first survey that shows 528,000 increase. Uh, there's never been such a gap between the two. The household survey, which surveys mostly smaller businesses, you see, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and the large, uh, you know, enterprise, the 528, which says that maybe large businesses are hiring, but small businesses are laying off even more. You got an employment, total employment decline of 112,000 versus an employment rise of 528. So how do you explain this anomaly, this contradiction, this gap? Well, if you look deeper into the report, because the truth is always in the details, you see, mm -hmm. uh, if you look deeper into the report, you see that in the population survey, 800,000 new part-time workers were hired last month, 800,000. It kind of suggests that that 528,000 is composed largely of part-time. And it may be that the 528,000 is full-time workers who are being reduced in hours of work to part-time. That's why we get such a big part-time number, 800,000 in one month, right? Uh, Let me ask you a question right there. So if in June I was working full-time mm -hmm. and then in July I got cut back to part-time, would that part-time position be considered a new job as part of the 528,000? Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. The Labor Department wow. does not count workers being employed. It counts jobs. 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 It's a jobs report, not an employment report. Got it. And this is where it's interesting when you dig a little deeper, because if you look at workers holding multiple jobs, second and third jobs, right, mm -hmm. we get a gain. We get a gain of 92,000 more workers uh, you know, adding second and third jobs, but it's considered a job creation, you know? One person working three part-time jobs is three jobs. Yes. As far as the report is concerned. Yes. Got it. And when you, when you look at 800,000 jobs, part-time jobs created, it kind of suggests that a lot of those are second and third jobs. At least 92,000 are second and third jobs, or you wouldn't have such a large part-time job number, 800,000, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's workers who are working more part-time because that's all they can find, or employers are beginning to cut back. They are not laying people off maybe as much, but they are only they are reducing people in hours of work or hiring only people part time. And that's an indication of a weakening of the labor market. Employers are being more careful about what they hire. They're not hiring people permanently full time. They're hiring them more part time just in case the recession comes comes and they got to got to dump them and lay them off. That's a signal that it's weak. And what corroborates this is if you look at another statistic in the CPS, and that is how many full-time employed workers are being hired or laid off. And there you see uh, layoffs occurring 
of full-time workers. Uh, 71,000, I think, full-time workers were laid off. This is all in tables 8-8, A-8, and A-9 in the CPS report, not mm-hmm. the 528,000 report, but the other one, right? So to sum up, you got full-time workers, 71,000 laid off last month. You got 800,000 part-time workers added, and you got uh, uh, that number of 92,000 multiple I mean, if it's a part, if mm-hmm. it's a multiple job, it's got to be a part-time job, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, being added. So if you look at that dynamic going on in the in the small medium businesses, it's not such a strong labor market. It is a a labor market that is transitioning into a much weaker condition, and the labor market always lags a recession by about six months at mm-hmm. least. We are in a recession, you know, this argument, oh, well, two consecutive quarters of GDP collapse, that's just a technical recession, and that these uh, elite economists belong to this quasi-government organization called the National Bureau of Economic Research, NBER, closely uh, aligned with the government, right? They're the ones who say whether there's a recession, and they're the ones who look at not just GDP, but employment, right? and other other uh, statistics to decide and declare after the fact, always, that we're in a recession or not. But people don't realize, and I think it's virtually every recession we've had since 1947, where we've had two consecutive drops in GDP, the NBER has always confirmed that much later, mm-hmm. that yeah, we mm-hmm. were in a recession. But yet you got the policymakers, you got Biden saying, oh, we got this huge increase. You know, the economy is doing doing great, but they're not looking at what's going on, uh, you know, underneath the covers here. And then you got the Federal Reserve who picks up on that 528, too, and says, oh, the labor market is booming. You know, we got to raise rates another 75 basis points here in a couple of weeks and then maybe another 75 later. Well, the Fed is just you know, it's got its head down and it's moving in the wrong direction. I think we have a recession that's already because because the Fed policy rates also lag six to nine months. The Fed is behind the curve and is going to exacerbate the trend of the recession already beginning, make it deeper and longer as a result. So the policymakers are, are, are uh, you know, playing games with the headline number. The media is only uh, cherry picking and talking about the big headline number to make everyone think, think it's it's better than it is, right? And the Fed is running headlong into it. Uh, but the reality is, if you look behind uh, the, the scene here, mm-hmm. we got part-time workers, multiple job workers uh, being hired, which explains that 528 Uh, And at the same time, we got full-time workers being laid off. Switching continents, low water levels mean Rhine is days from being shut for cargo. Businesses along the river say drought means they are on the verge of having to shut production. Germany's Rhine, one of Europe's key waterways, is just days away from being closed to commercial traffic because of very low levels caused by drought. Authorities and industries have warned 
Crucially, the impending crisis could lead energy companies to cut their output. One of the country's biggest gas companies has said, not only is this a climate change issue, but Jack, I just wanted to get your take on this as an economist, along with the piece in RT, millions of Germans won't be able to pay for heating. At least a third of Germans on low incomes may not be able to pay increasingly high energy bills. This is according to the German Tenants Association. They're warning this, urging the government to make changes to housing programs. Your thoughts, Jack Rasmussen. Yeah, Germany Germany is uh, perhaps the most exposed uh, to the sanctions on uh, Russian oil and gas. Uh, about 40%, I've read, uh, of their uh, gas and, and oil comes from Russia. And, of course, uh, uh, Russian gas uh, pipeline uh, exports are down to only 20% of their regular uh, level. Mm-hmm. So an 80% cut in that going on. Uh, and now I just read uh, yesterday that... Uh, the uh, uh, Russian oil pipelines have been shut down as well. Uh, you know, the Europeans, the EU, going along with the sanctions have said that, oh, oh you know, we're going to phase out Russian oil by December. Well, they don't have to worry about that anymore because it's shut down, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Uh, and as far as the drought in the Rhine is concerned, uh, you know, uh, apparently it's only 50 to 90 uh, centimeters of water in the Rhine. Mm-hmm. If that's the case, how are they going to get ships uh, upriver to mm-hmm. Cologne and Frankfurt, you know, the industrial center, uh, with imported oil? How are they, you know, from Venezuela, by the way, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, how are they going to do that uh, if, if the Rhine is so damn low? You know, that's going to exacerbate the problem, the drought, is exacerbating the problem of the uh, energy uh, imports from from Russia. So uh, Germany is in, in a deep doo-doo here. You know, they've already told their people, take one shower a week. Well, maybe now they're going to have to take one a month. I don't know. We have just about a minute and a half left, and the Rhine, which runs about 760 miles from the Swiss Alps to the North Sea, is the second largest river in Central and Western Europe after the Danube. The majority of nearly 200 million tons of cargo shipped on German rivers from coal to car parts, food to chemicals, is transported on the Rhine. Based upon the already existing supply chain problem, could the lack of shipping on the Rhine, could that contribute to the supply chain problem here? We got about a minute. Oh, absolutely. It's a supply chain uh, additional issue. You know, we, we the supply chains are never really um, uh, healed after COVID, you know, mm-hmm. and then the sanctions just, uh, um, you know, exacerbated the problem even further. Uh, and, uh, you know, the U.S. is clearly trying to split the world here, uh, realign um you know, it's allies against uh, China, Russia and, mm-hmm. and BRICS, you know, that's going on and uh, politically and that's going to reflect uh, economically, too. What's that going? What is that going to do longer term to all this supply chain problem? Uh, because most of the problems with inflation are supply chain mm-hmm. and all this. I know we don't have time to talk about, but, uh, you know, this just passed uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which is such a misnomer. And it's so absurd. It doesn't do anything about reducing prices. Uh, You know, that's going to continue even after the Fed 
precipitates the recession, which it is doing right now, that will whack demand-driven prices maybe, but the supply-side prices will remain and prices will stay around 5% even during the recession. I predict. Dr. Jack Rasmus, as always, thank you so much for your time and your analysis. Look forward to having you back. Always glad to join you. My pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. I'm back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Common Dreams reports hopes rise for return to Iran nuclear deal, which was, of course, uh, destroyed by Donald Trump. Negotiators hashing out a revived Iran nuclear deal said yesterday they believe they're close to reaching an agreement to impose limits on Tehran's uranium enrichment, which they consider to be a promising development. For insight into this and other issues, let's turn to my next guest. He's a broadcaster and independent journalist and analyst based in Beirut, Lebanon, Laith Marouf. As always, Laith, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So an unnamed senior official at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Islamic Republic of Iran told their state media yesterday that relative advances were made on a number of issues during the current round of talks in Vienna. Your thoughts, we go back and forth, on and off, we're almost close, now they're talking about we're Five seconds from the finish line. Your thoughts, Laith Marouf? Yeah, I mean, the delegations uh, spent four days, uh, you know, trying to hash out the details of this working uh, document that is based on the last uh, document that uh, we were told was going to bring us a deal. And then the United States uh, decided to change its mind. So now the delegations have all went home. There is no uh, indication of them ever coming back again to uh, this negotiating table. Each one of those uh, delegations is now bringing the document to its uh, state officials to hash out uh, their opinions on it. You know, uh, personally, I have no hope uh, in this deal. I believe that, uh, you know, the United States is just dragging its feet in order to uh, rearrange its uh, cards across the battlefield in Asia, as we see the movements in uh, Southeast Asia around Taiwan and the movements in uh, on the front of uh, Ukraine and Russia, and now the, of course, realignment of all the uh, you know military forces that the United States controls in Western Asia. So in my opinion, I hope I am wrong, but I think this will go nowhere, especially that the uh, Iranians have uh, requested guarantees that uh, uh, if President Biden is not reelected, that the next president is not going to just throw the deal in the garbage. And of course, that will require a vote at Congress and Senate and, you know, practically impossible that those two bodies will agree to a deal with Iran. Hezbollah warns Israel against targeting Islamic jihadists in Lebanon. Israeli defense minister has hinted 
at the possible targeting of Islamic jihadists who could be seen in restaurants and hotels in Tehran, Syria, and Lebanon. The head of Lebanon's most powerful armed movement, Hezbollah, Syed Hassan Nasrallah, warned today against any Israeli attempts to expand their targeting of Palestinian militants. Talk about this, because if they talk about people being seen in hotels in Tehran, Syria, and Lebanon, now that, and not that they haven't already done this, but, I mean, that to me is is full-scale war. I mean, look, this is a very important speech by Secretary uh, General of uh, Hezbollah, Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah. It was on the occasion of Ashura. And, you know, your listeners may not know this, but this is the most important, uh, you know, commemoration in the Shia calendar. Uh, It is the date of the uh, assassination of uh, Hassan bin Ali, the grandchild of Prophet Muhammad at the hands of the first uh, emperor, let's say, in in the Muslim world, the Umayyad empire. And so for uh, Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah to take time uh, in this speech to not only warn the Israelis that uh, if they assass- try to assassinate any Palestinian leaders uh, in Lebanon that there will be war, uh, this is uh, very significant. He also in this speech ordered all the forces of Hezbollah to be on the highest alert and readiness for engagement in war. Uh, And uh, the uh, commanders of all the Hezbollah forces uh, published a response to the call by Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah saying they're ready to uh, respond to any attack and or to go into the attack when uh, ordered by Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah to uh, demolish the Zionist uh, entity and and end the suffering of all people in Western Asia. When threats of war are bantied about, the stereotype is a green uniform fighting a blue uniform or, you know, pick a color on a battlefield. The sense that I get here is that this is going to be asymmetrical warfare. Let me put it that way. Am I correct in saying that? And can you give any insight into exactly how this battle is going to be fought? Hopefully that question makes sense. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, Hezbollah definitely was a a non-regular military force before the war on Syria. But through its engagement in the battle in Syria, it has uh, reorganized itself to be a hybrid force that on one hand has actual tanks and APCs and artillery, but also uh, uh, depends on uh, drones and very uh, versatile and uh, easy to move units uh, that are, um, you know, infantry units. And, you know, for the next, the battle that's going to come in the next few weeks, and it's clear that it's on the horizon, it most probably will start with massive attacks by drones and guided missiles and anti-ship missiles 
on the uh, oil and gas installations um, of the Zionists looting the uh, resources of Palestine and Lebanon and uh, an invasion of uh, northern Palestine to free it from the Zionist colonists. This is what everybody predicts, uh, including the Israeli uh, military analysts. They're all scared about the invasion, not only the destruction of all the um, you know, naval force and, and capabilities and resources of the Zionist colony, but also how the north of Palestine will be uh, liberated so easily. Um, so this is what we expect in the next few weeks uh, to unfold um, the speech today by Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah on this occasion of Ashura was, uh, I mean, the whole streets of Lebanon were empty today. I was walking down the street just trying to shop and I couldn't believe how empty the streets were. People were all, uh, you know, after hearing this speech, anybody who had doubt in their mind that we are going to war uh, doesn't have that doubt anymore. Do you think the residents of the Zionist colony of Israel, do they have the stomach for this type of what is anticipated to be, I think, a protracted conflict? No, of course not, because they have been pampered and privileged with the protection of the empire and all its forces and all its technology for the last hundred years, protected by the British, the French, the English, the Americans, and what have you. And now this international empire that, that propped them up artificially cannot even protect itself I believe once the uh, actual war starts, we will be seeing a return of these colonists back to where they came from. You know, if they are smart, they'll be getting on ships and planes now because once the war starts, it's going to be really hard to escape. How do you see the United States weighing in here? You know, the last time, uh, you know, the Zionist colony was going to lose a war uh, and that's we're talking in in in, in uh, 1973, uh, the two-fronted war, but where Syria and Egypt, uh, you know, attacked uh, the Zionist colony. Uh, the only thing that actually saved it was the threat uh, by the American re uh, government to use nuclear weapons, and that was a call made to the Soviet Union, and that's when the Soviet Union decided to stop its uh, supplies of. Um, uh, you know, uh, pieces for machinery to both the, the Syrian and Egyptian military, and thus, and thus, the you know the the, the invasion had slowed down and uh, and and they stopped. So I don't know if the United States will use a nuclear weapon to defend the Zionist colony, but the Zionist colony right now has its own nuclear weapons, and we don't know. Uh, we've been seeing how genocidal they are and how. Uh, proud of killing children they are. So it is a, a big question. Will they use a nuclear weapon to uh, start, you know, continue uh, this Zionist colony existence? Middle East Eye has a piece, Israel and assassinations. UN calls them illegal. So why is there no accountability? After decades of extrajudicial killings of Palestinians, Israel is no nearer to being held to account. Speak to that, if you would, please, and also in the larger context of the conversation that we've just been having. Look, uh, you know, international law is uh, great as ink on paper. 
Uh, but international law is not de jure, means it doesn't, it's not about what you do in court, it's de facto, meaning if you don't have the force to bring it into fact, is irrelevant. And that's why, of course, the the war criminals, the biggest war criminals of the world, the Bushes, the Clintons, the Blairs, will go unpunished because nobody can enforce that law upon them. And uh, for, for uh, you know, Palestinian people looking at how Israel continues its assassinations, uh, and, and we continue to also hear some uh, stupid commentator claiming that uh, the Palestinian resistance in itself is war crimes. Look, a, 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 um, a successful and strong uh, uh, liberation movement does not need to care about international law as much as an empire does not need to care about international law. And so for for me, as a person who works for the liberation of Palestine, I have zero respect for international law, save for as a propaganda tool. And this is where, you know, we, we talked this morning about assassinations that just happened in Nablus. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nablus is uh, my mother's hometown. Uh, it's called the, the, the Mountain of Fire. Uh, the Zionists are claiming that it's a huge success, that they assassinated a senior resistance fighter. His name is Ibrahim al-Nabulsi. He was 18 years old. He survived two previous assassination attempts. And today they needed to use Apache helicopters and fire missiles on him to be able to kill him. And, uh, and you know, the only equivalent that I could think about in uh, Western uh, history is uh, Jonathan uh, Jackson, the brother Mm. of uh, uh, Mm -hmm. George Jackson, who was assassinated by the United States when he attempted to... The Soledad brothers. Yes, yes. This is... Look, the the whole West Bank today was up in arms. Hundreds of thousands of people came out to the streets to this funeral of uh, Ibrahim al-Nabulsi and his comrades that were killed. His mother carried his coffin. I mean, uh, in my homeland, sometimes a mother carries her child twice, once when he's in her womb and another time when she carries him his coffin uh, to say farewell for him. And this is, this is our, our reality as Palestinians, and we will continue to fight until the end of the Zionist conflict. So Israeli troopers killed three Palestinians, including Ibrahim al-Nablusi, and you say he was laid to rest today. Laith Marouf, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really, really appreciate that analysis, especially on a day that is very difficult for you, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you are listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. I'm back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. 
Venezuelan Analysis has a piece entitled Venezuela to Rebuild Fellowship with Petro Government in Colombia. Petro called for Latin American governments to leave aside their political differences and work toward regional integration. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. She's the Latin American coordinator for Code Pink, Terry Madsen. As always, Terry, welcome back. Oh, nice to be back. So Venezuelan President Maduro celebrated the inauguration of Gustavo Petro as president of Colombia with leaders pledging to rebuild the long but fraught relationship between the two countries. And I think it's also interesting to note that President Maduro was not allowed into Colombia to celebrate the inauguration of the new president. What's going on, Terry, and how encouraging is this dialogue? Well, the dialogue is is very, very hopeful, encouraging, and as so many people on both sides of the border, Colombia and Venezuela, are saying, finally, finally, we can uh, we have an opportunity to reestablish peaceful relations, including you know diplomatic policy and economic policy. So it's very it's enormously important, and it's enormously encouraging. And it's an it's a huge olive branch extended from Colombia to Venezuela, and uh, and it out it gives us all a, an idea of what direction the new president and his cabinet are going to take regarding foreign policy and economic policy, and peace, peace within Colombia and peace within the within the region, including Colombia's neighbors. I think, you know, you uh, mentioned the Venezuela analysis article and um, saying Petro called for Latin American governments to leave aside their political differences, their domestic, their, their, um, yeah, their differences and their um, disagreements over each other's domestic policy and work toward regional integration, regional integration, multipolarity throughout the hemisphere. That is the theme. And we've talked about this many times on your, on your show. Um, and the particular moment that really articulated regional integration was last September in Mexico City when the president of Mexico reconvened the Salak after a four-year um, pause. And really, that was about creating regional integration, about creating a block of Latin America, Caribbean nations uh, uh, to trade among each other and to integrate with the rest of the world as a block of nations. And so it's really um, fantastic to hear, you know, the new president of Colombia reinforce that vision and, you know, clearly believing in it himself. So we're seeing this big new evolution, this new wave, you know, of economic and political um, philosophy rippling through Latin America and the Caribbean. It's quite exciting. President Petro said it's time to leave behind the political blocks, the groups and the ideological differences in order to work together. Let us understand once and for all that there is much more that unites us than what separates us, and together we are stronger. He said this during his inaugural address. How do you think that language plays in the United States? Well, it doesn't. Uh, I mean, that's simple. You know, the United <laughs> the United States didn't even send you know a presidential delegation you know, to the inauguration. It sent a very low level delegation. The president did not go. The vice president did not attend. 
the Secretary of State did not attend. It was, I think the U.S. delegation was led by Samantha Powers of USAID fame. So that message from the United States was very clear, no high-level uh, representation in Bogota, and then to send, uh, you know, someone who represents USAID. And also, who else is on that delegation? Um, Juan Gonzalez, I forget, and, and I know uh, Meeks was on the delegation as well, which was hopeful that he was in, that he was um Included. I forget who the other, the fourth person was, but three of the four. It was hopeful that who was included? Meeks. That Gregory Meeks. Why is that hopeful? He has he has some reasonableness. Some. I mean, now this is you know that's a relative term. We're talking about U.S. foreign and economic policy. So he has some reasonableness about U.S. policy. Uh, towards Latin America, including being somewhat reasonable on Venezuela and other sanctioned um, countries. The other three on the delegation are have a, a track record of anti-Venezuela um, policy. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, it was a strong uh, it was a strong message. Who was not sent and who was sent. Well, in terms of Samantha Power representing USAID and understanding the role that USAID plays in fomenting coups, I think a clear message may very well have been sent by sending her. Yeah, <laughs> it was pretty strong. Yeah. Especially to Colombia and understanding the role that Colombia has played on behalf of the United States. Yeah, for 70 years. For... <laughs> Thugs for hire, you know, there's a lot of evidence supporting the position that the assassination of the president of Haiti came out of Colombia. Yeah, and the attempted and the assassination attempts against President Maduro in Venezuela. Correct. And God knows how many others throughout the hemisphere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and the fact that there are eight recognize U.S. military bases within Colombia. So uh, what, what was, uh, I don't know if you had a chance to listen to President Petro's um, inauguration speech yesterday. He did not mention the United States, not once. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'm not, you know, we don't know if that was because there was no high-level delegation sent or because a number of, yeah, he listed 10 points of reform and policies that he wants to introduce. And, of course, one in particular is ending the war on drugs, which is U.S. policy. And um, he, um, he didn't directly mention the United States, nor did he directly uh, go after the United States on its policy. He didn't put any specific name you know, to those policies that he wants to change. And that was probably very smart, <laughs> you know. It was probably good diplomacy on his inauguration day not to overtly uh, mention the United States in a negative way. But to not mention the U.S. at all was, uh, was a pretty strong message from him. And, I, and, and, and good, in my opinion. What about his using the sword of... Sima- oh, Go ahead. I'm so glad. I'm 
so glad using you can finish using the sword of Simon Bolivar. Yes. No, this is so significant, Wilmer. So significant for so many people throughout the Americas. And we've talked about Simon Bolivar before on your program and how little North America knows uh, about him. And I believe it's intentional. We don't learn about him as we're being educated in the States. You know, he's the liberator of, uh, of Venezuela, of what we know today as Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador, Panama, Bolivia, and Peru, and uh, liberated those countries from Spain. And so his sword was taken down uh, by the Colombians, I want to say, in the early 70s with the hope of, of reinstalling it. Um, during the peace accords, which did not happen. But most importantly, that sword represents Simon Bolivar as the liberator of those six countries, liberating them from the Spanish Empire, which is why on Sunday the King of Spain was the only person who did not stand when the sword was brought to the inauguration. Hmm. Yeah, he was the only high-ranking dignitary that did not stand when the sword was brought back. Of course, that sword represents, you know, defeat of the of the Spanish Empire, the Spanish military. That's interesting to me because he was in the room. I mean, he was there. He came to the event. Yeah. And that's a historic reality. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. you know, the score was what the score was. And when the game was over, Spain lost. Yeah, so don't come if you don't want to recognize, well, the, you know. Exactly. Yeah, send, send a low-ranking delegation instead. <laughs> Ask Samantha Power to represent you. I mean, just... exactly. Well, you know. Go ahead. Well, it's fascinating what we're talking about. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but what no. we're talking about, the king of Spain, it's really, really important. And I think we've mentioned this before on a prior broadcast, that Spain was invited to Biden's Summit of the Americas. And I think, you know, th that to me, it's like you're inviting the conquistadors. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, this is summit of the Americas. Spain is not America unless you want to go 500 years back, you know, mm -hmm. and and look at the Spanish Empire's dominance and the church's dominance or the, the empire, the Spanish Empire through the church dominance of, of or conquering of the of the Americas, um, South America. Spain is part of Europe. Yeah. <laughs> But Spain was invited to the summit of the Americas in mm -hmm, June mm -hmm. in Los Angeles. And so I think, you know, this was a really nice, very uh, nonverbal response to the, you know, th that inclusion of Spain in the summit of the Americas. And basically, Petro saying nonverbally on Sunday, Spain is not part of the Americas. This sword representing this man is our America, our liberated America, with very, very powerful, carefully powerful. Yeah. On Monday, President Maduro expressed his deep disgust for the illegal grounding of the Venezuelan state-owned Amtrasur airplane in Argentina. Can you talk about why that was done and the significance of that? in my opinion, is a really good example for those of us that work on U.S. sanctions regime policy. Um, and, and 
and a good lesson for people who know very little about how sanctions are used. This uh, plane that is sitting in Argentina is a Boeing 747. So it was, uh, it was a plane manufactured in the United States. It was sold uh, to Iran, to Mahan Air, and that, that sale must have occurred. It's not uh, before uh, extensive sanctions were placed on Iran and most certainly before it was listed as a state sponsor of terrorism. So this is a U.S. manufactured plane sold to Mahan Air in Iran. The Iranians have apparently refurbished it, um, and then it was sold to Emstrasur, um, and the parent company of Emstrasur is Convianza, which is the Venezuelan state airline. Okay. And so this is where um, you're ta- you're looking at um, this second, third tier of sanctions that happens by the action of one sanctioned country. Mm-hmm. So Iran is on the state sponsor of terror, which pretty much prevents them. I mean, that's about it. That's as severe as it gets on the right. sanctions regime mm-hmm. process. So they can't, you know, basically interface with anybody. And this isn't just directly, you know, uh, interfacing with the U.S. This is anybody who does business with the U.S., okay. anybody who does anything with anybody, you know. Mm-hmm. It's friends of friends of friends of friends. Okay. Stuff. So they have sold the plane to, you know, Amstrasur, uh, whose parent company is Confianza. Confianza is the state Venezuelan airline. That uh, airline is sanctioned by the United States. And now it's being grounded. Uh, yeah. Terry Madsen. Yeah. As always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, and there's more on the other side. Stay tuned. I'm back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. TASS reports, sooner or later, Europe to wonder if Zelensky is doing everything right. Dmitry Peskov, a Kremlin spokesperson, noted that European countries that were trying to punish Russia had been actively paying the bill for it. For insight into this, let's turn to my next guest. He's a political cartoonist and syndicated columnist and is actually right now joining us from Istanbul, Turkey, Ted Rawl. Ted, as always, welcome back. It's a pleasure to be here. So before we get to the issue that I opened with, I know you've spent some time traveling through Europe. You've spent some time recently in Moscow and St. Petersburg. Give us an idea of what's happening on the ground there. How are things in Russia? Well, I have to say, um, you know, I'm used to there being a disparity between the coverage of mainstream Western media and the reality, as I hate this expression, on the ground. Uh, But I've never seen such a glaring disparity between reality and what's being reported to American audiences in my entire life. And I'm almost 60 years old. Uh, I've spent the last two weeks in Moscow and St. Petersburg, 
And I, before I left the United States, I'd been deluged, as every other American citizen has been, by a lot of uh, coverage about how the Russian economy is in a state of complete collapse and how there's nobody, uh, nobody's buying anything, stores are closing, uh, the economy is in ruins. And uh, let me just tell you, Moscow and St. Petersburg are the two biggest cities in Russia. And uh, anyone in New York or Washington or Chicago would happily trade places with the economy that they have in Moscow and St. Petersburg. Uh, there are no, you know, you don't see, as you do in New York, uh, boarded up storefronts. You don't see, uh, you don't see uh, crazy homeless people who are not being treated for mental illness, raving and ranting on the subways. Uh, the metro is clean and efficient. That's certainly not the truth in uh, my hometown of New York. Uh, you are, uh, you know, things are bustling. I mean, it's like Christmas shopping season in like the malls uh, in St. Petersburg and in Moscow. Uh, the stores are full. Uh, people are, I, I asked a lot of people about the economy. Uh, basically, the only real effect of the sanctions, and this, I found this surprising, was really that it seemed to extend the effects of the corporate, of the COVID-19 lockdown from the started two years ago, where basically Westerners and uh, Americans stopped coming to Russia two years ago. And that's just sort of continued. And maybe that's the sanctions. Maybe it's COVID-19. But people haven't really noticed any discrete change from what happened from as a result of the sanctions. I mean, you know, if you are Russian, you, you don't care about the fact that the Visa and MasterCard don't service your country anymore because you have your own mirror system of credit card, which is exactly the same. Um, you know, people, the, the, the ruble is still strong. Uh, stores are full, business is full, restaurants are full. I mean, I didn't, I mean, honestly, I, expe I, I would have expected to say, okay, well, there, it's clearly like th there's some problems. I really would have, I really did expect that. And I, I'm shocked at how, like, there's just how completely sanction-proofed the Russian economy appears to be so far. Any repercussions, not necessarily economically, but whether it be politically or socially as it relates to the military intervention in Ukraine? Is that a topic of discussion and all the bus stops and subway stops and all the restaurants? Is that the buzz? It's definitely not. Um, it's, it's sort of mildly. Uh, I, I guess I'd compare it to like the, the U.S. invasion of Grenada or the U.S. invasion of Panama, where, you know, there's if you look for them, there are signs that this is a country that has a war going on. Uh, you'll see the Z logo on a few posters uh, and banners in, uh, across Moscow in particular um, and St. Petersburg as well in the metro. But it's not a big deal. You're not going to see a lot of armed you know, you're not going to see a lot of soldiers. You're not going to see, it's not like Penn Station in New York, which has tons of National Guardsmen with carrying guns that are taller than they are. <laughs> you're not going to, you know, it, it's it's sort of not a big topic of conversation. Um, you know, the, the, when the sanctions come up, the main reason the sanctions came up when I was there was that I had to pay for everything in cash as opposed to using debit or credit cards, as most Russians do. And they say, and they'd be like, really, cash? 
and that's unusual for Russians, even more so than it is for Americans. And I'd be like, oh, Americansky, you know, I'm an American. And they'd say, oh, oh. And some people would say, like, yeah, this is stupid, or, you know, Biden's stupid. And there were some people would just say, like, yeah, I understand, this is what's going on. Uh, and that was about it. I mean, it's not at all the way it's being portrayed. I mean, these stories about the Russian economy's in ruins, uh, the elites are preparing to overthrow President Putin. I mean, it's, it is a joke. It is a complete joke. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really used to a lot of lies uh, from American media. And, uh, you know, I went to Afghanistan in 2001 because I suspected that the war was being covered basically in a series of lies. But this beats it all. It's so diametrically opposed to the truth that it's ridiculous. How about how you are being received and treated? You just seem to be able to say very freely that you're an American. You don't get people looking at you asconce or you're not afraid of being pulled into a dark alley and, <laughs> and beaten with a Russian flag. Dr. Leon, I'm so happy that you asked me that question. Um, people, all my friends asked me, told me that. And I kept saying like, well, you know, from what I know of the Russian people and people around the world, only Americans really do that thing of equating <laughs> government policy with the individual. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't expect that to happen. But, and it didn't happen. But to the contrary, look, the biggest risk truly is to my liver. Because <laughs> when I was in Moscow, I kept getting treated to free drinks and, uh, and drinks. And everyone was so happy to see me. Not one person had anything negative to say at all. To the contrary, people were so happy. They said, oh, my God, you're from America. That's so great. We haven't seen you guys for two years. Uh, you know, when are you, please come back. I hope you're the first of many. Uh, you know, that's so awesome. I went to the banya. I went to the I went to bars, restaurants. Everybody was surprised to hear me speaking English and wanted to know where I was from. And they were, I, I swear to God, to a man and to a woman, everyone was so incredibly hospitable, so nice, so kind. I mean, if you can get to Russia, I mean, it's a pain in the butt because of the sanctions. Mm -hmm. You have to go through, you have to go through Istanbul, change planes, and you have to pay for everything, including your hotel in cash because your debit and credit card will not work. If you can Do get there- Do they accept there, dollars or is everything in rubles? Everything's in rubles, but you can easily exchange your rubles. Mm -hmm. There is a workaround, by the way. Uh, if you have an account at a Western bank, which I of course, obviously I do, I have an account at Citibank. If you just go to, in my case, I just went to Citibank and I was able to pull money out of an ATM. I think if you went, if you you know had an account at B of A or any kind of American bank that still has a branch in Moscow, you can get uh, you know cash out of your ATM, but you can't use your credit card. Uh, if it's issued in the United States. So you just show up with a big pile of cash. <laughs> I ran into a dude from Sweden who had just uh, come in and he said, oh my God, just came in with a giant pile of cash. It's the only way, it's so great here. It's so awesome. And it's true. I mean, it's a Westerner. You have the place, I mean, it's not like it's empty. All the, all look, the line at the Hermitage was insanely long. Everything is bustling, but it's at least you're not fight. You're only fighting up against other Russians. You know, you're not fighting against euros or Americans. It's like in the height of summer, 
it's more easygoing. But it's not like, you know, it's really not like a collapse. It's not like, oh, you can get a hotel room for 10 bucks or something. That's not true. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to pay. But it's but you will be able to get a nice room if you can pay for it. You just have to pay in cash. It's a pain. I mean, you know, if you if you were to run into a giant, I mean, the truth is, these sanctions are a major inconvenience to citizens of the United States and and your and the EU. Well, in fact, that takes me to the task story. European countries supporting Kiev will sooner or later begin to wonder whether Zelensky is doing everything right. This is according to Kremlin spokesperson Peskov. He told reporters today he was commenting on a Zelensky interview in The Post in which he said, among other things, that Western countries should ban all Russians from entering their territory. Your thoughts, Ted Rawl? Okay, so that's completely insane. Already, uh, the West has cut off its nose to spite its face by not having, by not, when Americans and Westerners don't go to Russia, we have no cultural or political interchange at all with the people of Russia, right? Mm -hmm. So we have no influence on them at all, for better or for worse. And now, uh, Russians, if this kind of proposal were to go through, Russians, Russian citizens would have no positive or negative influence on uh, people in the West. That would also be insane. Um, you know, I mean, I'm not a free trade advocate per se in terms of economics, but when it comes to people traveling, mm-hmm. I'm a huge believer that it opens people's minds and uh, it gets us closer to understanding the truth, which is that all human beings, wherever they live, whatever their religion, whatever their culture, whatever their politics, all care basically about the same things and basically are wired the same way and basically are far more similar than anything that tries to separate them. And these kinds of ideas are toxic and disgusting and should be rejected. Since you're in Turkey, Turkey to not back Finland and Sweden's NATO membership till its conditions are met, according to Turkish President Tayyip Erdogan. Any chatter about what's going on there in Turkey? Um, I haven't heard a lot about that. I mean, the Turks don't seem to be that agitated about the situation between Russia and Ukraine at all. Um, you know, things are, seem pretty stable. I mean, Turkey, All I've been here many, many times. I've been here like 11 times. And I, I think that, you know, Turkey always feels like a, a country that is gloriously on the brink of collapse but or change or whatever, but nobody ever really knows. And it sort of still feels like that, but it's never felt quite as stable as it does now. Um, I, I don't think the, um, you know, I think, I think Erdogan has been, you know, keep running a tight ship and uh, the Turks seem pretty okay with him. Um, I think the, his stance on, you know, on that, on those applications for NATO membership now, obviously, there's some domestic issues between him and those countries, uh, and between you know. But I think, uh, nevertheless, it's also in the broader in the broader sense. Look, NATO should never have expanded beyond Western Europe to begin with, mm-hmm. and it, the whole idea of NATO was that it was anti-Warsaw Pact, anti-Russian co- military coalition. The Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore. Uh, NATO should have been unwound in 1991, and the fact that it still exists, it's like this zombie 
uh, situation from the Cold War that should be gone. And so, you know, like, yeah, let's contain it. Let's, uh, let's, let's, it shouldn't get any bigger. It should go away entirely. Final story, Europe to face economic slump due to situation in Ukraine. This is according to Ninisto, the Finnish president. Are you getting the sense as you've been traveling through Europe that this inflation as well as the sanctions regime is causing a lot of consternation within Europe? Yeah, in Europe, but not in Russia. I mean, you know, uh, gas prices are roughly three, translate to about $3 a gallon in Russia. But you can see them uh, as you drive by gas stations here in Turkey, uh, you know, shooting up literally by the day. The value of the ruble is pretty is up and down, but sort of basically averages out at the same. The value of the Turkish lira, not so much. Um, yeah, I think you, know, you can sort of sense that um, Europe is sort of on the brink here. I mean, I think we're going to really see what really, uh, you know, the rubber is going to hit the road mm-hmm. this winter. When the when uh, the heating sure. when the the oil stops flowing and uh, you know Europe has to make do without Russian oil and gas, that's going to be a major problem, and you can sort of start to just see the bare beginning of that now. Ted Rawl, as always, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate that analysis. Be safe. We look forward to having you back. Thank you, folks. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Responsible Statecraft has a piece entitled, APAC's New Strategy, Spend Millions on Elections, Don't Mention Israel. The lobbying organization's first foray into electoral politics has been marked by spending GOP mega-donor dollars on Democratic primaries. Why? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's an author and journalist working for peace and social justice. He writes extensively about U.S. foreign policy and the Middle East with a focus on Palestine. His latest book is entitled Settler Colonialism in Palestine and Kashmir. Robert Fantina, as always, Robert, welcome back. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here. So APAC announced last year that it would launch a super PAC, the United Democracy Project, and endorse candidates sent shockwaves through foreign policy and advocacy communities. This piece says APAC has long refrained from engaging in electoral politics, preferring instead to lobby members of Congress to support maintaining Israel's nearly $4 billion in annual military and other aid from the U.S. and to oppose diplomatic efforts to constrain Iran's nuclear program, but now the super PAC is active. Robert Fantina. Okay, well, this is the, the issue here is, the important thing is that this new super PAC doesn't mention anything about Israel, mm-hmm. because APEC knows that that's not a winning strategy. They know that the, uh, the sympathies of the American public in general uh, lie with the Palestinians. Uh, Israel is seen as an apartheid regime that's been documented by several major human rights groups. So by uh, opening this new United Democracy Project, does that sound, sound really impressive? United Democracy. That's what we all want, right? So they are pouring this money into these 
candidates' campaigns uh, for the benefit of Israel, but they're not mentioning Israel at all. And this, for some bizarre reason in the United States, is legal. One of the things that I find really interesting is there are a number of levels of hypocrisy here. The one that you just articulated, it's an APAC-backed political action committee that doesn't mention Israel. Also, this is not the only one. There's another one called the Urban Empowerment PAC. Mm -hmm. That's very active in Detroit, trying to remove Rashida Tlaib from office. There's another one that was very active in Maryland. Again, none of them mentioning Israel. And then the other level of hypocrisy here is everybody's up in arms, and particularly during the most recent presidential election, about Russia's alleged involvement in American politics and campaigns. And here you've got APAC front and center involved in American campaigns and, again, hiding the fact that what they're really doing is championing policy for Israel. And that I've, I've written about that, Doug Leon. I've written that everyone, the, the media, the U.S. government officials, they're just all indignant that Russia may have uh, tried to influence U.S. elections. And yet Israel is doing that hiding in plain sight. They these uh, these uh, new super PACs, even APAC, which has always lobbied and funneled money to different uh, politicians, the, these new new super PACs aren't endorsing candidates that they think will do the best job for the constituents within those districts. The, the one in uh, Illinois Omar's opponent. It's not as if they feel that uh, his name is, is Jacobs. What's his name? Uh, Don Samuels. They're not saying that, oh, he will be, he will best serve the constituency there. He'll best serve Israeli interests. So the Israeli government, through its uh, lobby groups in the United States, is definitely working to influence U.S. elections, and no one is saying anything about it, except for us. And they also are playing or trying to play a very big role, particularly in races where African-Americans are involved. They backed Glenn Ivey in Maryland as he ran against Donna Edwards. They played a big role in the Ohio race where Nina Turner lost. Again, Rashida Tlaib, she's Palestinian, but they're using, they're fronting an African-American woman in Michigan to run against Rashida Tlaib. And then Bakari Sellers in South Carolina is carrying the water for APAC. So I find it very interesting that APAC, a political action committee that backs Zionists, mm-hmm. and we know that Zionism is racism, mm-hmm. is using black candidates as their front people. And they're doing this because they recognize the strength of the Black Lives Matter movement. They recognize that uh, people of color want to elect people of color. So they will find uh, black candidates who are willing to toe their line, who are willing to uh, sell their souls for campaign dollars. And these PACs are donating millions and millions of dollars to these candidates. This is not, this is, these are not small amounts of money. They're investing very much, very heavily in these candidates. And the fact that they are black candidates in, in many uh, circumstances uh, makes them more appealing because 
they are in black communities and people want to people want to elect people who are like them. Mm-hmm. So so they are using that to uh, to circumvent human rights. These these candidates that they're they're supporting, they're not interested in human rights. They're not interested in civil rights. They're interested in getting elected. And they will take money from anyone who offers it to them and 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 do their bidding in order to get elected. And the very consistent thing also about all of these individuals is they will be pro-Israel, they will be anti-Palestine, and that they will be pro-Zionist. And so when you look at, I mean, the most obvious one that they're running against is Rashida Tlaib. And we know, you know, her stance Mm -hmm. on U.S. policy as it relates to the colony of Israel. Mm -hmm. And so, again, they're hiding in plain sight. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Hiding in plain sight because they are publicly supporting these candidates. They're publicly influencing election. Uh, if Russia tried to influence the previous presidential election or an earlier one, it did it. That, that country did it surreptitiously, and that's terrible. But you do it right out in the open. Oh, that's okay. It, it's total hypocrisy. It's again the U.S. government kowtowing to whatever it is Israel wants and let me get away with with anything. There's a piece in the Times of Israel offering centrist alternative. Ex-councilman poses long-shot challenge to Ilhan Omar. Don Samuel says squad member alienated groups, including Jews, and that most rejected her effort to defund police. This is an example. A former Minneapolis councilman is running a centrist pro-Israel platform, African-American man, Mm -hmm. who will seek to pull off a long shot to unseat Representative Ilhan Omar, who, by the way, is having some problems with her own constituency. Well, she remains popular. There have been some issues, certainly. But the polls indicate she's going to win in a landslide again. Mm -hmm. But what we have here is a man who... There have been many links between the Black Lives Matter movement and Palestinian uh, liberation organizations, not the PLO, but uh, organizations in the United States that support Palestinian rights. There there are natural affiliations and alliances uh, and commonalities between the Black Lives Matter movement and the Palestinians. And here is this man, Don Samuels, who is black, who is rejecting that, who's rejecting those very natural and very common uh, common commonalities. Both are uh, oppressed populations. Both are being oppressed by major world powers. Uh, and by those organizations working together, they can, they can be stronger. And yet he's rejecting that and weakening them. It does nothing for the Black Lives Matter movement or for the Palestinians. And I'm glad that, according to polls, uh, he's way behind and doesn't have much of a chance of win- winning, and I hope that is the case. And also he's trying to equate her pro-Palestinian position and her anti-Zionist position as being anti-Semitic. And we know that's an often used, very common trope, mm-hmm. and there is no correlation between being anti-Zionist and anti-Semitic. That is so true, and that's that's not being said as much as it was because people are seeing through it. <laughs> Excuse me. Being um, anti-Zion, if you criticize the government of Israel, you're criticizing its policies, you're criticizing its racism, its apartheid, you're not criticizing Jews. <laughs> so it's not anti-Semitic in any way, shape, or form. 
but the Zionist lobby likes to uh, equate the two because it, uh, people are afraid of being labeled anti-Semitic. And so the Zionist lobby hopes that they will tone down their criticism of the, of the government policies of Israel out of fear of being labeled anti-Semitic. There's a piece in the Times of Israel after mediating Gaza ceasefire, Egypt's envoy castigates Israel at Security Council. As Lapid praises Sisi, Cairo's envoy to UN laments martyrs killed, Israel desecration of Alaska calls for an end to Israeli blockade and says Israel's responsible for the Gaza Strip. Your thoughts, Robert? What he's saying is, is very true. Uh, Egypt was instrumental in brokering this latest ceasefire. And I want to point out this was not a war because it was not between two equal, uh, by any means, parties. But the, uh, Israel was very happy with Cairo for doing this, but Egypt said, it pointed out exactly what, what you, just, you just read, that there were many people killed in uh, Palestine, that Israel continually desecrates the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and the blockade must end. Israel, as the occupying power, there are no, there are no Israeli soldiers in Gaza, but Gaza's borders are controlled by land, sea, and air completely. So the United Nations has defined it as still occupied. So Israel, according to international law, is responsible for the health and well-being of the people in the Gaza Strip. And what are we to make of this tongue-lashing, if anything? It is no more than just language and rhetoric, but it went further than uh, most ambassadors are willing to go at the U.N., we have one minute. Your thoughts? Yeah, it's true. It's, uh, it was a, a very severe rebuke of Israel, Israel, which basically controls Egypt, but uh, has Egypt wasn't going to back down on this one. It, the e- Egyptian government apparently finally recognizes the destruction and the injustice and the violation of international law and human rights and the crimes against humanity that uh, Israel com- is constantly committing against the Palestinian people and finally called Israel out on it. That's, that's a good thing. It may be just words at this point, but it's a, it's a shift, and that's important. And let's hope those words can be turned into action. Robert Fantina, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Thank you very much. My pleasure, as always. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing my voice into your space. I hope you were informed and enlightened, and I look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. I'm out.